We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured in Celluloid on Make Time for This, probably a part of the Eurostep Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast family. And we're ready to talk about movies, ready to talk about one of my favorite films of the year, a film I've been teasing on the podcast for a while, and also kind of prodding Andrew with a film that is not necessarily easy to see still, but is definitely at the point where... uh, conversation about it is valid and i want to keep spreading the gospel so that when people do get a chance wherever in the world they are to see it that they remember the film they remember the name and they check it out that film is on colleen kuhn in my part of the world the quiet girl everywhere else and it is the irish film that is nominated for the academy award for best international feature film Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. How are you? I think I'm doing good. Um, I'm doing great. Very excited to to be having this conversation with you. To I I don't know if I even thought is this the kind of movie that generally we give a full episode to. Um, I don't know, but I guess then maybe it is because. I think our level of reaction to it was strong enough that that is generally what we like to do and what we've maybe struggled to do a little bit more often lately, which is to just purely advocate for things we love um, as opposed to talk about things we maybe have larger reservations about. Um, So I guess maybe it does fit the template of what we like to do more on the pod, at least. Yeah, it definitely fits that template. And to give... Give the listener a little bit of a background. You know, this is something that's that's been very, very hard to find. You saw it a while back. My brother saw it at a film festival a while back. And you both were locked in on this being one of the best films of the year. And that's something that, like we've said on this podcast, doesn't always happen. You know, one of you is the angel on my shoulder. One of you is the devil on my shoulder. And, you know, 
I won't say which is which and, and who is who. I think it can vary from day to day, from week to week, from month to month. Um, so it's something that I had been looking forward to seeing because it got rave re- reviews from two people I talk about movies with all the time. And then Adam, lo and behold, two showings only at a local independent cinema. And you said, Andrew, you have to go see it. You have to go see it. So I, I spent my money, uh, went to the cinema. I bought some popcorn and a Dasani, uh, no free ads. And then I, I watched it. And Definitely not uh, for that. No free ads for that in particular. Me and Mike Budenholzer both uh, were taken aback by the taste of the water. Um, but anyway, you know, sat down, watched the film. And as it would turn out, uh, neither of you had led me astray. The buildup, the critical acclaim for the few people that were able to see it, and then the recognition in the... Uh, awards conversation all warranted so that's why we're here devoting a single episode to a single film something we would have done uh maybe back in our in our earlier podcasting days i don't know but we usually like to pack a few things into an episode deep dive on a director deep dive on a few new releases but this this time i think it's it's a film that's uh it's it's worthy of mention just because it's especially on this side of the world it's been so hard to see so I say if if you get an opportunity somewhere, you really just need to make sure you see it um, because of that. Yeah, and I mean, we, we have done this. It's I guess it's rare enough that a debut feature film comes along and the reaction is as strong as it was for us in this case where we say, okay, um, we love that enough, so we want to do an episode on it. I feel like right around the same time last year, we actually did something very similar um, with Shiva Baby. I think that that was one of the other times I can think of where we took a debut feature. So there was no, oh, we're going to talk about this director's new film and we're going to rank their filmography or we're going to kind of group things together in any other variety of ways. So that is that is something that I I do like to do when the opportunity arises. And sometimes it can be tough because if you're talking about independent debut feature films distribution may not always be that wide and you may get a situation like this one where i saw this back in may when it was released in ireland i actually i was later to it than i should have been it was one of the only films i did not see at the the dublin international film festival last year it was the gala opening and I, I was locked in on the virtual festival at the time to just essentially get everything I could. One of only two or three things I missed was actually on Colleen Kuhn, The Quiet Girl. Um, which in hindsight, big mistake on my part, Andrew. I, I definitely should have been there to see that. Um, but I eventually got it in May and I have spent a lot of time since. And I did urge you when that festival came along. I was like, Andrew, you gotta got to make this happen. I think the stars were briefly aligned and then they weren't. And it's taken some time. And I know for people listening, I know a lot of our listeners, the majority of them are based stateside. The film has got distribution stateside. It will get a very limited release in major cities, as is generally the case, I guess, for this kind of prestige film, which is what it is now, an Academy Award-nominated um, non-English language film. If it plays near you, make sure to seek it out. If it doesn't, I don't think it's going to be too long before it will be on iTunes and Google Play and all of those kind of things. And hopefully it'll end a nice streaming home where 
where people can check it out. I, I actually I wonder what kind of streaming home might get. It would seem like something that would align with a lot of uh, Criterion channels new release streaming. It would kind of fit that mold quite well, I think. But that's kind of enough of the challenges of getting to see this film. Um, we only we only open it up with that to to set up if if it's not playing near you if you haven't seen it. Um, we will we'll put up a spoiler warning later as we get deeper into it. But I want it to stick out in your mind and be like, oh, that's the movie that Andrew and Adam were talking about. Not just you know that's the Academy Award nominated film, which I don't know which of those two things has more sway, Andrew. Uh, but maybe they're equal for some people. Where we start? Will Will I start with some of, I guess, the the background, the the cultural context to this? Because this is a little bit different. To, for example, we talked about the Banshees of Inisherin as an Irish film not too long ago on the pod, and um, this is of a very different track of production. Yeah, I think. Uh... Again, a history lesson for me, or at least some context uh, anyway, would be helpful, especially because of uh, the language aspect of this as well, because that's something that wasn't really a factor in pain. She's been a sheer and, and very much is here. Yeah, and honestly, this is, I, I think, undoubtedly at this point, the biggest spotlight that's been put on the Irish language in quite some time on a global scale where people will check this out and people have seen it at festivals. And people have responded to it, and it is in Irish. That is not something that happens very often. It's probably come up one way or another on pods before, for anyone who doesn't know. Um, the Irish language lives on in Ireland. It lives on in a governmental sense. It lives on in a every road sign you're going to see, every town you enter, you're going to see dual language. You're going to see English and you're going to see Irish. Everyone in the country is taught Irish in schools. It's mandatory, uh, which is often a source of some contention and discussion. But all through primary school, people do Irish. All through secondary school, people do Irish. And what is sadly the case in general from there is that it, people just kind of put it aside then. It's essentially a subject people do for school and then they go on about their life and over time, their grasp of the Irish language just fades away, disappears because in most areas of the country and in most elements of everyday life, the opportunity to use it is limited. Um, there are exceptions to that. There are Irish-speaking areas known as Gale Talks throughout the country. There are not an insignificant of them, but they're generally pretty small communities, plenty of them dotted around the West Coast. Um, the one in this film, more the Southwest. Um, and these are small communities where the Irish language is the predominant language, and um, where residents will generally speak Irish, uh, where I think culturally, in a wider sense, for most people particularly from an area like dublin which is very much not an irish language heavy part of the country um people's exposure to the gale talks comes from it's a place where as teenagers at around 15 14 15 um teenagers get sent off for a week or two during the summer to go to this irish speaking area which 
is, you know, on the one hand viewed as, oh, it's going to help you in your exams. And the other hand is viewed as like teenagers go and they have a great time with a lot of people their own age. They're very formative experiences, Andrew. So that's the that's the Gale talked and I guess the place that the Irish language is. Um, do I need to explain the very basic why the Irish language is not the predominant language in Ireland? Do I need to? Is that self-explanatory? I mean, you, I, mean I assume it's self-explanatory. <laughs> listen to, but the, listen to some of Wolfwalkers. Is that? Yeah, yeah um, I mean, you know. Well, the Irish language is not the predominant language spoken in Ireland to this day because the English came and invaded and occupied Ireland and. Yeah, English became our language from there, much like, you know, there are plenty of different places in the world. Look, you're speaking English in America, Andrew. This is this is the this was their thing. This was their whole gig. And uh they they did it successfully as far afield as the US, but they also did it successfully just across the Irish Sea in Ireland. Um which makes it a very complicated thing because I, I would say generally Irish people are very patriotic in a way that is normally less problematic than I think that word generally tends to be inferred as around the world. I think there's there's a different vein that, that runs through it for most people, um, a sense of really wanting to push forward and not let Irish identity die out in a way that there was a real attempt for that to happen. And yet here is this thing that should be central to it in the Irish language. And much to, I think, many people's shame. And I think even people who don't necessarily enjoy as a child being told, yes, you have to learn this language, that it's it's something that it kind of disappears for most people. And that's not to say it's a completely dead language. There have been many instances of revival of the Irish language. I think this film could ultimately prove to be something of a spark for that. Um, but what it does mean is there are plenty of government schemes and government funding available to Irish language programming, Irish language films. And in theory, it is a route to get funding for your films, which in Ireland, we have a pretty small film industry. And it's not something that you have a whole lot of avenues open to you. Um, and you're essentially looking for variations of state funding, whether that's from Screen Ireland, who are the kind of the national film body, um, the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Then you have our state broadcaster, RTE, would occasionally invest in, in film. And in this case, some of the funding came from TG Cahar, which is the Irish language broadcaster I'm trying to think is it i think it might be semi-state so definitely some state funding goes into it but i don't think it's fully state-owned um and in the past few years there start to there started to be kind of a ripple of much more interesting artful irish films being made in the irish language which is something that's pretty striking hadn't been a a feature certainly in a breakout way before that um in 2020 i feel like it was 2021 late 2020 maybe early 2021 a film called Arct was released um directed by Tomaso Sullivan one of the better irish films i've ever seen in a way where it's suddenly the kind of artful filmmaking that when i go to 
an art house theater here and I'm like, okay, I'm going to see this film from France or Germany or Poland or Italy. There's often just a certain feel that can come with that. Um, that has largely been absent from Irish filmmaking. All of a sudden, there was a semblance of that, and that was interesting. And that film did quite well in a relative sense in the box office in Ireland. Uh, on Colin Kuhn comes along, The Quiet Girl. I'm going to keep interchangeably doing that because in my head it's on Colleen Kuhn, but I know to everyone else they're like, "What? What is that movie?" Um, that is just the literal translation for The Quiet Girl. Colin Kuhn started to make some news because it was the first Irish language film ever to be accepted into Berlin Alley, the Berlin Film Festival. So that was something that got, I think, people like me, you know, it popped up on the radar and started to get your attention of, okay, well, this this must be something of note. And it also came away with a jury prize from Berlin Alley, which again was a sign that, okay, this is this is something a little bit different. And I guess essentially that began the film's journey, which has been a really long journey at this point. Um, I I don't even have numbers comparable to, to give the context for this, but it's really, I mean, one of the best examples I give, the Irish box office is so small that you very, very rarely see Irish box office numbers reported on their own um, for the purpose of film distribution and exhibition the market is UK and Ireland and UK box office and Irish box office get grouped together. Releases happen simultaneously across the two markets and they essentially act as the single market. Uh, this film has grossed, well, it grossed over a million euros. They hit that mark in October, which for a really, really small independent film would be colossal in its own right. But for an Irish language film was an even bigger deal. Um, it has returned to cinemas in recent weeks for obvious reasons, in light of the Oscar nominations and restarting, I guess, with the BAFTA nominations too. And it has just been doing absolutely gangbusters. Like, I haven't gone to see it again in the cinema in the past few weeks, but anecdotally, screenings are sold out. There's just I, I have seen long queues of people going into screenings of this film. Um, I believe it's now up to 1.3 million euros. It is in its 38th week of release, um, which I know is a record in at least one of the notable cinemas in Dublin. It's the longest running film they've ever had continuously. And I saw the the head of one of the, I guess what's the biggest chain of multiplex cinemas um in the country last week say that it overtook Avatar The Way of Water to be number one at the box office last week as it returned to number one at the box office as they brought it back to cinemas. So to describe this as a phenomenon in like a cultural sense, I think is one thing, but also the level of business this film has been doing and for what it is, has been truly phenomenal here. And that's one thing, but to then see that met with the kind of recognition that has come for it, the kind of recognition someone like me has hoped for since I saw it back in May, but honestly just seemed like a complete fantasy, a pipe dream that an Irish language film would be nominated for an Oscar. It was the first Irish language film to ever be long listed. Honestly, that seemed like it was as good as it was going to get. And 
how great is it that you get to that spot and the kind of buzz that would come with that would be about and people would get to see it um, or people who are really curious would seek it out. And then for it to actually work its way in, maybe at the expense of Park Chan Wook, a decision to leave as a nominee for Best International Feature Film is mind-blowing. Um, so this is a real true underdog story on every level because an Irish language film is essentially an underdog within its own country. Um, and with that, I just think everything about this has been all the more remarkable. And at the same time, I guess the success it's had here and the fact that it has resonated far beyond the Irish shores as well really just speaks to objectively that this is a pretty special movie. That's that's the, the cultural context. So just all that? Just all that. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah. Um, you asked for it. No, I did. And I'm, I'm just saying that it, for everything you said, is it's just there's a lot going on and a lot to unpack there. And it is. I'm I'm trying to think of a comparison. It's really like the, uh, the the sixteen seed upsets the one seed in the NCAA tournament and in movie form, uh, and then I guess becomes obviously with it being re released into theaters and the success it's having there, like becomes a a program that's uh still the underdog, but like has sort of just like up leveled a degree um so i i knew none of that going into this viewing i barely knew what it was about uh i don't think you what knew you what described. it was about i don't think i would have described much maybe jordan gave you some more than i did but i don't no not really um i think about the extent of how you described it uh on the podcast was all i knew uh this podcast make make time for this or capture on cellulite on make time for this if if you if you guys have never heard of it um and for that i just i didn't know what to expect obviously you've got the i mean it's, it's like any kind of international film i'd see i've got my subtitles i'm good to go i don't need anything else uh, obviously they do sprinkle in english uh throughout the film depending on who's talking with who and what the context is but uh I, w that I would being... say that that one is not obvious, but we can maybe unpack that because I think that is also 
very intentional. Oh, interesting. Well, I I guess you can tell me, but I would imagine that even in these communities and pockets, you'll have people that uh, still lean on or not lean on but like steer more into the the english language as it becomes like the norm throughout the rest of the country is that something that would tend to happen or is it more you will have that you more now you would have pockets that maybe it's like okay there's some english language speakers and it's obviously it's not like you talk to I say this, there's probably some part of the country where you could go and speak to someone in English and they may look at you completely baffled. I don't think that's the case. Um, But in some of the really remote areas out west, it's not impossible if you've lived a very sheltered upbringing and everyone around you has only ever spoken Irish. Um, I don't know, though, at this the time, this is set right at the beginning of the 1980s. And I think uh, a community like... I believe it's a ring in, in Waterford. I don't know. I would have thought it would be closer to a fully Irish-speaking community. Now, when English comes into this, it is not someone from that community speaking it. Um, but we can, we can unpack it a little bit later, but I do think the demeanors of the people speaking Irish versus the demeanors of the people speaking English is... <laughs> There's certainly some heavy lifting being done thematically there. Um and I guess where the purity and the innocence and the kindness comes in the film as opposed to what's kind of much more gruff. Um I I have no doubt I'm reading too much into that, but that is something that certainly aligns with how language shifts from characters to characters. Um but yeah, it does there's something that I, I've seen it quite a few times now and not an experience that I've ever found for, I will call English my own language because it is, it's my, my native tongue where I'm watching a film. And when it goes back to English, I at times was like, can we just get this back into Irish? But I, I do think there is something very intentional with the kind of conversation that takes place in English, the characters and, the tone where you want to get back to what is a much more comforting and soothing space, uh, which takes place in the Irish language. So I, I think the, the use of language in the film is fascinating from that regard. And I, I think there is probably room for a reading on a um, representation of English language versus representation of Irish language. And what uh, the director and screenwriter, who I don't believe it mentions his name yet, Colin Braid, maybe looking to infer somewhat. He is a filmmaker who's his feature debut, but he has worked exclusively in the Irish language before this, has made TV documentaries and shorts for TG Carr, that um, Irish language broadcaster. So, yeah, I don't know. That's a that's an interesting one. But I, I think there's a little bit more grey in that, and maybe that's something that the film is playing with quite intentionally. We'll have to... Uh, have the shoe on the other foot when we get into the different dialects and where the crawdads sing. Um, but we can cross that bridge <laughs> on another day. Uh, how much do we want to get into about like at least the setup of this film and what it's about, or do you just want me to give my my general thoughts on how give I your, give your general thoughts first and kind of wider views on how the film made you feel? I guess things that impressed you about it, and we we will do some getting into specifics, but I just want to 
give us a chance to talk about it so people who haven't seen it can hear some more first. Yeah, so initially, obviously, the first things that I'm going to pick up on on a movie is just how it does make me feel, and then then I'll say how it makes me see. But I, I found it to be the most emotionally impactful movie I've seen this year. Obviously, you've already talked about just uh, the kindness aspect of this film and about a person who has gone from living their existence as a burden rather than an actual human being and someone that's seen as like, like just mattering at all is honestly how it feels. And just the character development of the titular character there, or just the, the people that get introduced along the way. So I found it all along the way, pretty emotionally impactful. And I think it's a good point that the, the language that it's in and that aspect of it, can do a lot to evoke those feelings. So I think from that same point, it's very effective. And then I, maybe I was more surprised. I shouldn't have been because of, um, of, of you being drawn to this film, but I think it's a pretty, uh, visually more stunning movie than I was anticipating things like, uh, scenes down like by the water and the well, or, uh, obviously running is heavily featured to kind of just like, tie into some of the themes at play and just some of the emotions and then something as simple as like a glass of orange juice or or like uh like i don't know it's just so many things just the way they're framed and the way they jump out at you and in a very simplistic way really do tie together with the atom that emotion and then obviously the setting and the time period i was going to ask you what time period this was set in but you established it early. i, I should have uh, i should have asked you to guess that i should have uh, because because that would you had a guess in mind because that that could be something that even as an irish person i could be like well maybe these people just live in a really rural part of you know and and maybe it just looks like the 1980s there but it's actually 2020 which is obviously exaggerating it to an extent but I, I on my first viewing I found it quite difficult to place. There are a few there's a lot of very good sound work in terms of radio and TV show and uh matches. This the Sunday game plays in the background and there's a um Koch's father is listening to a Waterford game on the radio on the way down that he's put a bet on. Like there's there's lots of little details put in that I think on additional viewings, you can pick up on some clues and kind of begin to, if not really pinpoint it um, in a specific sense, get a general sense of the time frame. But would you have had a an idea or a time you would have guessed? I think I, uh, I gave myself a, a wide range when I was describing this to some people. Uh, I said the night, I said probably the 1970s. So okay, that's close but, enough. You know, that's, I was trying to like, the cars is what I was trying to use to yeah, like. Yeah, that that's the that's probably your best bet. The scene they go into town is probably the thing that most grounds it in a time. Yeah, uh, definitely. But it, I almost, and for me, like not knowing what, like a uh, time period references or visual cues in this period would be, it, it felt like I was almost watching. Not a very different movie, but like you know, it follows. It's like not really described when the time period is, but it yeah, just it's out a, of it's out of time and place. It's just it's right. its own thing, exactly. And that's 
even if it's not true and someone else could pick up on it from another way, that's that's how I felt. And that it didn't feel like alien or something that really was working against the film. But yeah, I guess those are just some of my general thoughts that it it I don't know. Like it's uh it's so like sweet from time to time, but it's also so devastating from time to time. Mm-hmm. And I think that balance is what it what really makes it work. And uh, I'm glad we're a few days removed from having seen it because I was I was not in a place where I could talk about plot specifics without just being like, why is the world the way that it is? Uh, For some people, I'm so sad right now, but also like, hey, isn't it nice that human beings can embrace one another and show each other kindness uh, in the face of uh, troubling circumstances? Yeah, it is very sweet, but without being saccharine, even for a second, like it never, it never goes the wrong way on that. And I think underpinning it all, there's a very kind of cold, harsh reality. Um, part of that of being Ireland of the time, part of that being, I guess, Ireland generally, um, in a in a larger historical sense, and I guess one of the things that really sums the whole movie up but is very loaded in terms of this Irish idea of a child being sent away to live with someone else which is a very troubled and traumatic part of Irish history particularly 20th century history really fueled by the church Um, this film may not be specifically about that but I, I think it does draw upon that I think it's very difficult not to conflate those two things slightly because this whole film kind of operates around you know a child that's a burden to to one family could be the greatest gift of all to another family um and it leaves a lot to unpack but i think it does that very very well very gracefully and it also knows where to stop um, the whole film I think operates with ellipses as opposed to full stops or periods. It 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 knows exactly when to let the audience do the work. Um, and I think a lot of the time that's emotional work and to work through it emotionally and to think about it in a way that's both intellectual and emotional. And I guess to engage some of the more intellectual, like. I've worked really, really hard for months not to over-hype this film and to also tell myself that I probably have a bias and to play it down. And every time when someone would see it, whether that's a critic that I like or I'm interested in, they'd see it and react in a big way. Or indeed, when your brother Jordan saw it and I saw how much he liked it, I'd be like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not over rating this maybe i'm not just kind of tapping into some element of uh patriotic pride that's making me view this as something greater than it is and i think ultimately i'm going to a place where i feel like really i am not and every every viewing i i have i just get more and more in awe of like this is quite simply one of the most technically accomplished films of the year um, I think visually there are very, very few films that can hold a candle to it. There have not been very many films this year that come close for me because the cinematography is just 
absolutely beautiful, but the decisions all around in the direction are perfect. The level of intent and the detail and the ideas at play in that. Um, I'll give what is maybe one of the most obvious examples. It's one of my favorite things to do. And the staging, the blocking in this film reminded me quite a bit of um, Fear Eats the Soul, Rainer Werner Fassbender's film. And particularly the use of the frame within the frame and framing through door frames. And I guess the playfulness that that can give you, but also just the versatility and the depth to your image. So there's so much that takes place in terms of reframing the character of Koch. That's essentially what the film is. It's here's how you're introduced to her and here is how she is viewed and here is her identity in this space. And then you come to this new house, this home, this place that gives her the kind of warmth and love she's not familiar with. And the place becomes essential to redefining who she can be, who someone else can see her as. And I think with that, it becomes a really clever device to use door frames, to use every kind of opportunity to think of, okay, how can we reframe her within the space? How can we anchor her to the space? How are we lighting this space? How's it, how's it look here? Um, and I think between the production design, cinematography, there's so much about it that's really, really striking. Then taking it away from Koch and taking it to Sean and Eileen, um, the couple who she goes to stay with, I don't think we mentioned, but Eileen is a, I don't know if she's a first cousin or a distant cousin. She's a cousin of uh, Koch, the teacher, quiet girl's mother. And in a couple of different sequences, one where Koch is kind of peering through the doorway at a moment where she should not quite be seeing and she's seeing Sean and Eileen kind of emotionally embrace Again, the decision of how we're seeing that and kind of seeing that almost over Koch's shoulder and through the doorframe and reframing them as a couple in that moment and the impact that Koch and the events of the film are having on them, I think is really, really impactful. There's another shot, though, and it's it's one that's just kind of burned in my mind. Um, And I know it plays out in kind of the montage near the end of the film where we get cuts to various key moments from the, the summer that Koch has spent there as she's returning to her own parents. And there's one shot where the camera is slowly zooming out or probably dollying out. And Sean is on his own over standing, looking out the window. And the window is open and the curtains are kind of swaying. And the image is just, it's a painting. It's a painting. It is so so artful it's so impactful it says so much about his emotional journey about the film's emotional arc and that was one of the things that jumped out to me when i saw it is it feels like every frame is built upon so much intent so much intent and really grounded in this kind of meeting point of style and I don't want to say style and substance, but style and emotionality, style and the kind of heart of the story. And if you're going to make this film with this much heart, it's the kind of thing I always talk about on this podcast, but you want to see a film meet it on its level and be like, okay, well, what are, 
how do we use the tools of filmmaking to amplify that feeling? How do we how do we get it to a place where what we want to say, it's not just there on a page, it's not just going across a performance, but we're doing everything to maximize the impact of that with how we're putting it on screen. And cinematography, I think this is one of the best edited films of the year. I think its pacing is really, really beautiful. And the where in spells, I guess it does border on slow cinema. Um, and I think it has a quite languid pace. There are moments where the editing will pick up, and I I think it pulls on the heartstrings without necessarily being overly manipulative. Um, Stephen Rennick's score is phenomenal. It's, again, I think just one of the best of the year. Um, there are two to three kind of recurring motifs that just pop into my head ever since I've seen it, and then. I can't get out of there for quite some time. The score is not available to buy or stream anywhere, and that is something that I'm not very happy about, Andrew, because I'd be listening to it quite a bit. Hopefully that will change. Um, but yeah, I just think, honestly, all around the level of craft that's gone into the film. So that's Combray's direction, the writing, the screenplay is absolutely fantastic. Nominated for a BAFTA for Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, it is adapted from a short story or a novella by Claire Keegan called Foster, which um, if it didn't first appear in The New Yorker, it did appear in The New Yorker at some point. Um, Kate McCullough's cinematography, really, really special, and she is a rising star um, in, an, in this world of cinematography. John Murphy's editing is brilliant. And as I said, Stephen Rennick's score. And what, one thing just to note on that, because I was actually just in doing research, though, was only kind of realizing kind of the level of craft support for this film, um, which is possibly how it got to where it's got to in that it got nominated for Best International Film. And you know what? Maybe it's the kind of thing that if enough people watch it in the next window and people have the really strong response that I would expect all will have and that kind of craft support continues, who knows what will happen. Um, but Kate McCullough got nominated for a Spotlight Award um, by the American Society of Cinematographers. And at the Golden Reel Awards, which is the Motion Picture Sound Editors Association of the U.S., um, it was a nominated. It was nominated for outstanding achievement in sound editing, which again, the work sound wise in this film is just outstanding. Those kind of things are not necessarily all that common, even for prominent foreign language films. Um, for the craft kind of acknowledgement within the guilds to show out in that particular way, so I found that interesting. Again, I think it's totally earned. And anyone who sees the film, I think they'd have a very tough time. I I think you'd have to be made of stone to not engage with this film emotionally. I honestly don't know how that could possibly happen. Um, but even if you were made of stone, I, I don't think you'd be able to say that this isn't an incredibly well-made film. Yeah, Adam, as you know, I'm made of stone and to not have the uh, the case for potential bias uh that you do so i can only echo 
all of your thoughts and obviously don't want to spoil anything because I think the film is a journey worth going on, uh, both visually and emotionally, and just some knockout performances from obviously actors I had no prior experience seeing on screen. Uh, it's a movie that's lived with me the last, uh, you know, however many hours since I uh, saw it. And we'll continue as we get closer to uh, award season and hopefully more people getting access to this movie and getting to learn about it. And, uh, you know, then they'll come back to this podcast and get the, the history and context lesson from you. And then that will make their experience even more rich. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it was uh, it was well worth my time. Are you familiar with the saying? It's just something I feel like I need to ask now because it seems like you're often not familiar with sayings I showed you, but that something would bring tears from a stone. Is that a saying that you? Uh, it sounds like something I've probably heard before. It would you, if you are the stone, I believe this one did bring tears from the stone. So, I yeah, I am the stone, and it 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 brought tears, uh, for sure. Um. Likewise. I was worried we couldn't do this podcast. I, I, I to show well, I'm you. Go, a I'm going to get you to talk about the plot in a minute, so we will talk about the specifics. Which may oh, just, okay. That okay. may bring on the kind of the emotion that maybe you thought you'd avoid it. Well, that's. Uh, I guess that's unfortunate for me. But uh, go ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to put up a spoiler warning now. If you haven't seen um, the Quiet Girl on Colleen Kuhn, please don't listen any further seek it out do what you have to if you see it's playing somewhere near you um it is worth your time trust me on that i wouldn't advocate this strongly for it if i didn't really really mean it and andrew is here to back me up as the the non-biased party in this too it is worth your time so keep an eye out for it if it's in a theater that's absolutely the way to go and see it but if you can get it on streaming or whatever down the line Make sure you check it out. That's The Quiet Girl on Colleen Q. All right, Andrew. Um, let's let's open this up more. I want you know what it's, I don't want to just take the lead on this and be like this is the Irish film. And so, do do you want to talk take us through your impressions of the story or how you see it play out or? I, I want to hear I want to hear this story through the eyes of a North Carolinian. That's the really what I'm getting at here. Well, I've never been in an experience uh, in an experience where I was sent to go live with someone else, but uh, I can imagine that even if you don't fully understand what's happening, it can be pretty heartbreaking. So our you know the our main character here say the name again, Adam. Koch. Koch. There you go. Got it. Perfect. Perfect. Um, her parents are overburdened by all the children that they've chosen to have, I guess. Uh, and all the mouths to feed. Uh, I, I, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna chosen to have is just the uh, Ireland, very Catholic, very regressive country until honestly, not too long after this, as in contraception in terms of the wide availability of it would not have been a thing. So there may so still be just, an element of choice, just, but uh... I will, I will just put in with that because uh, 
this is, I guess, part of the ideas of not unique to Ireland too. I believe is also in the case for plenty of other devoutly Catholic countries um, up until more recently, and in some, I'm sure, it's still the case. Um, but where this idea of large Irish families is something that came about, it's a byproduct of the church and what the church would forbid um, and permit, I guess. So, like, I, I think that's maybe some context here. I didn't mean to. I want the North Carolinian perspective, but to just to jump in with, I think this is a case where this is a family living the 80s, a really grim time in Ireland, a time of recession, like a, a time of real kind of poverty for a lot of people. Um, and a family that is definitely larger than they could afford for it to be. But that would just have been par for the course at the time in the Pope's Ireland, we'll say. Well, it didn't have to trigger like shit anyway, uh, but I get that uh, 100%. Um, you also asked for this. You said North Carolina perspective. I do. I want I want uh, your perspective. Uh, wow. Religion, Adam. What a what a thing it is. Um, what are anyway, your favorite subjects? I'm sorry to bring it up. One of my favorite subjects. Yeah. You know, sent to live with a cousin who's does not have similar burdens for reasons we'll come to understand. And uh, yeah, I think uh, all of those social politics at play give it even another level is that uh, the heartbreaking idea of it having to be like, she's the one they've chosen to, to represent who needs to go away. And like the little comments about how much she's going to eat and eat them out of house and home um, and things like that just show it. But also the heartbreaking uh, nature that their situation means they have to do something like this or they're not going to be able to afford to live. So it's just like they've been beaten down by their own circumstances to an extent. Um, I also, as this character starts to like be introduced to her mother's cousin and her husband and become more comfortable in her own skin within that house and that family. It made me feel a little bit like some of the moments I felt in after sun where it's like, you may think that this person is not absorbing or gathering all of this information as they begin to grow up, but they are the comment, uh, especially when her new mother figure in this case is asking her like, what else does your mother say? And the line that first sent me into a tailspin was, she says, I can stay as long as I want, or you can keep me as long as I want. Mm -hmm. I think is actually how I was phrased. And I was like, dear God, that's like such a heartbreaking line in the moment when you're, you're starting to realize that this person doesn't feel like a person, but feels like a burden and feels like a grocery bill, so to speak. So yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty hard hitting. Um, and then just the the kindness that is extended to her because they recognize exactly like the situation that she's in and that it's her circumstance, but it's by no fault of her own. So they can see some of the, the trauma and then just some of the insecurities that she's growing up with as someone that doesn't feel comfortable within her own home and own ecosystem and school and whatever it may be. So like uh, when we have the the bedwetting incident and that's met with not like great. Now I've got to do a bunch of laundry, but it's met with a joke about the, 
mattress is weeping or whatever. Uh, so we come from this just like very uh, dark and dismal situation. And then just, just like light is totally let uh, into her life. And just the, you know, the, the shopping spree, we'll call it. And the, the running and the chores as the it's the so the husband, Sean, is that how his name is pronounced? Did I get that? Yeah, right? it's okay. Sean. It is correct. Okay, they they did yeah, me. A I favor thought you'd on... manage that one without clarification. They, they did me a favor on that one. It's just like you know, I'm is my my brain and my mouth and my eyes just need to like have a seminar or something and learn how to pronounce things correctly. But um, he reminds me of like the old trope that's like the the family gets a dog the dad doesn't want the dog and then the dog becomes best friends <laughs> with the dad and that's you're uh, describing the dynamic between my dog and my dad there there you go so, see it never fails but as as he you know gets to be more used to her doing the chores and hanging out with him and all that like the relationship that develops there is is pretty special and it also feels to a degree like um He's taking away some of the emotionally heavy lifting from his wife because she's appears to be more haunted by the trauma that's left him in the situation than him in the middle. Like, because he's keeping a distance and like not yeah, letting himself. I, 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 th- I think the the part of that that maybe, maybe you skip past is that how cold Sean is to her early on, where right, he's clearly yeah. protecting himself. And he hasn't, he's the one who actually hasn't worked through stuff on a surface level. Now, and I think on a deeper level, it's his wife, Eileen, who's, who's really got a lot of the hard work to do. But I mean, I should probably explain that part yeah, of it. Now, I, I realized we, we put a spoiler, spoiler alert section. up, but <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I wonder how you felt. I thought this was pretty subtly done the first time I did it in that, it remains enough of a reveal. I think you you will know something is off and you can start to guess, but I don't think it's just... I, I think it's a tough balance for the information where it could be something that you feel like, yeah, I'm ahead of the film here and it's being concealed from me for a long time. I think it's handled quite well that we see it play out in the way we need to, to see it from Koch's eyes, and yet at the same time, when the reveal comes... It, it still hits us hard. So some of the hints, I guess, that we get left to, to pick up on. So when Koch arrives um, at Sean and Eileen's home, her father drives off with her suitcase in the car. So she has arrived at this strange place to meet these people she's never met before, I think. Um, or at least she was a very young child or a baby when they would have seen her before. And all of the possessions that she had brought with her um, are now not with her. Her kind of careless, feckless father has driven away with all of them, and he is not going to be the kind of guy who's going to figure that out five minutes later and decide, you know what, I'll turn around and I'll make sure that she has those. So immediately there's a need for, okay, she needs clothes, what are we going to do? Um, I Eileen looks her up and down, and as I think is probably a little bit shocked at how kind of shabby the clothes look how i guess just how she doesn't look very well looked after in any way i think that's one of the things with the you know she'll each out of house and home and um, the irony is obviously it doesn't take much to look at her and be like well actually this child is 
maybe malnourished is certainly being neglected like in most other ways not necessarily out of maliciousness which i think is probably key here just i don't think her father is the greatest person in the world to say the least um but neither is he the likely like the purest form of evil um i i think there's something that's just a little bit more passive and that creates its own problems particularly in a situation where there's a need for for active parenting to to make sure that these children feel loved because they're living in tough circumstances so to make up for the clothing that isn't there for her, um, she gets brought upstairs to this room. They open a wardrobe, and in there, there is clothes. It's pretty masculine, though. It's boys' clothes. And so, for quite some time, we see Koch dressed in these boys' clothes. And something else that, I mean, clearly bothers Sean and doesn't make it any easier for Sean. Um, to to take the coach to kind of settle into a more avuncular role in the way that he ultimately does as the film progresses. Um, the reveal is that Sean Nyling did have a son, but he he drowned in a slurry pit on their farm. Um, so they tragically lost him, and I guess in some ways their home is frozen in time. Certainly, his room is frozen in time. Maybe Sean and Eileen have been frozen in time. And this is an opportunity for something new, something different to come along and shake them out of that. But it's also a reminder of what they lost. And I think it's probably not too much for reach to say what they crave most in the world. Um, so I guess that is the extended setup to bring us to the point where the big reveal comes out and things takes it, take shape. But feeding into the point you were making that, that I guess sparked me to, to cut in with that. For Sean, it is a gradual thing. Like Eileen is ready to be a mother immediately at any opportunity. Um, whether she's ready in a deeper level for that or whether, whether she's ready to be a mother figure to coach as opposed to, I don't know, as dark as it sounds in a very vertigo-esque way to dress someone else up in, you know, her dead child's clothes. I think that's something else that's kind of more complicated as it goes on. And it's certainly part of her grieving that maybe in this rural community away from everyone else was a little, was a little bit easier um, to just put that in a box. Like there's the fact the reveal comes from a nosy kind of sneering neighbor. Um, in a scene which is actually pretty funny, like there's some funny dialogue and funny moments in that scene, but I do think that points to that's maybe the the worst of it, like, and that might be the exception in the community. Like, very easy for them to isolate and for people to take care of them in a way that we actually see them taking care of neighbors in tough situations throughout the film, too. It's that kind of place. Um, but Koch arriving is maybe confronting them with the kind of thing that not that they've avoided, but they haven't had the kind of opportunity to, to confront and work through. That's uh, I think, especially or in hindsight with Sean, once we learn the reveal, reveal, and I guess with both of them, but by the time 
Sean starts to take more of an active role in developing that relationship with Koch, I think Eileen needed it to a degree because it was almost like, I think, a, a degree of too much too fast. Like you're trying to repair this hole within you by mothering this person that's been brought to you. But that's obviously going to open up some old feelings as well. So I think they so, show some moments where it's just just those two. And then they, you get to a place where it's like they just feel like a real family as mm-hmm. the, the three of them. Which is also getting... probably part of what like sets Eileen back too. Because yeah. she gets to see her husband acting like a father to this child. That's what was taken away from. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like all of that and uh is really well done and it's not a long movie but it's not rushed by any means it's the progression feels earned and nice and then you just get so many little endearing moments that could in the wrong movie feel like uh out of place but aren't here like the money for the ice cream something as simple as that it's just uh great the like timing the running and all that that is a very very I, like that specific, like literally ice cream, that is a very kind of Irish dad, uncle, granddad kind of response of like, here, get yourself an ice cream. I think in this case, it was like a 20 pound note. And it's like, <laughs> I think the line is, is like, she's going to get a lot of ice cream with that. But that yeah. is, there's something about that too, which is kind of felt very real. Uh. I mean, that's definitely a thing here, too. It's like, go see a Star Wars kind of a situation. Sure, but sure. Uh, a little a little more gentle than that. But uh, And then by the time, like, it's like, oh, they feel whole. And it's like, they're, it, you abruptly get that end of summer, and it just hits you like a gut punch. Uh, and do you, you know, obviously... Do you know how long Koch is there? Because this is something... Now, I'm taking this from the Wikipedia synopsis, but it's pretty well fleshed out, so I'm sure this information has come from some official synopsis provided at some point. But I only saw this when I did a reread of the synopsis for this, and I was struck by how long she was there, because I had an idea in my head, Mm. and I think it, it made me think about oh, the film actually does a really good job of blurring the lines of time in a way that you experience time as a child as well. Like how long a summer would feel or how long... So I don't know if you had a sense. What did you think? How long was she there for? I would have guessed two months. She's there for one month is oh. what, what's here, which I would have assumed two to three month range yeah. too, essentially a full summer between school. Um, But no. Shorter, shorter than that, which if that is true, I found that interesting because I do think that works in another effective way. But sorry, I cut across. You. No, uh, that that's that's uh, that just kind of goes along with uh, kind of the larger takeaway I had from that. It's just like you feel like you're being ripped out of the positive situation too quickly her and it adds to just you know it's a very kind movie but there is that rough interior exterior whatever it is because of the reality of what her life will likely be because you can't just be like well i guess you could who knows but you can't just be like all right where are your parents now can we work this out is that all right but like 
I guess we get to a point where, you know, I wouldn't put it past them to try and do something like that. And, that you know, reality that's something that happened seeing. here too, though. It's like not generally? happening in this in this film, in that kind of time frame, and when these instances would happen, that essentially, you know, I'm not saying like in an official, oh, let's go and let's officially adopt, but in a more in a looser way, like I do know of people anecdotally. Um, I think going back within my own family and also then probably friends of friends or where that kind of thing may have happened in larger families and it's it could be, you know, oh, well, there is a cousin who couldn't have a child or something and it's they may look after someone for a while, become like a mother. So, uh, like, again, there's a lot of that and I don't know, there'll probably be some other, actually there is a movie coming this year which is getting some early buzz in Irish film. Um, that will unpack some of that. There is a really, I mean, pitch, pitch dark history that's for another time on, I guess, um, that part of Irish history. And again, the church's role within that and dictating the terms of childbirth and motherhood within society. That is not, that's not impossible. And yet I also don't think this film, for like you mentioned right off the top, it's sweet. It's a very sweet film. It's not giving us a sweet ending. Like in in the moment, the ending is sweet. The ending is satisfying. I think it would melt anyone's heart. Again, I just, I do not know how someone's heart could not be melted by the ending of this film. At the same time, I think at just the tiniest bit of a remove, you kind of find yourself in a place where you're like, oh, that's fucking dark. Like that, mm-hmm. that is that is dark and that is really sad and like that is something in a wider sense of what does that say about people and the circumstances around their life and then what it means for their life and I guess their own sense of self worth which is really central to I guess the idea of Koch and seeing what just one month of love and care and attention and purpose can do for her versus the child we meet at the start of the film. I think you could be maybe a real optimist or romantic and be like, oh, but you know, she's going to be changed by that experience forever. Ultimately, she's still, I don't know, a nine, 10 year old girl who's got a 10 is probably on the old side too. Um, got to go back and live in that house as it's even more crowded and there's even more people competing for her parents' attention and competing for food. And she's not someone it seems like you have very many friends in school I don't want to bring this right down, but I, I as a film, I respect and admire for that because the ending packs the punch. The ending is the perfect ending. Perfect ending, perfect time. You cannot do it better. Like it, It's very rare. There's a few films of the last 10, 15 years where you'd be like, that ending, perfect. Um, I know there's one we've talked about, which has become a favorite film of yours, the ending of Phoenix, Christian Petzold's film. To me, it may not be quite there because that might be the best ending of all time, in all honesty. Uh, but it's it's not a million miles off. Like it's it's in that kind of conversation. And part of why it's so good is not just the emotional punch, that it's a perfect place just kind of in every way to finish the film. It's that what it leaves you to think about as an audience member. Uh like that's that's something that to me is striking and because you, you could let this run 
you could end it before that, honestly. And the overall impact is still there. It's just implied. It doesn't get the tears out of you right at the end. Or maybe you could run it past that in some way and you could make it get more visibly darker. But I think there is something to the ambiguity of it that isn't really that ambiguous. Yeah, I agree. Made me made me sob all over my uh my golden retriever. Um uh, should we should we actually just run through that ending to wrap it up? Yeah, run, I won't, run I won't it. necessarily make you do it. I don't know if you're up to that yet. You're I'm not, and I've been assigned a task, so I'm in a tough spot. Um <laughs> uh, okay, so a letter comes true. And the month has gone by, end of summer, and a letter comes through Sean and Eileen from Koch's parents that the mother has given birth and it's time for Koch to go home. So she's home and ready for school. And in spite of everything, they agree, yeah, that's what's going to happen. That's what has to happen. So they make arrangements to drive Koch back to her family. And they do return to the house, which is kind of just as she left it. It's just as chaotic. There is now a new baby there too. But to what extent things have changed, I don't think it was just a matter of, oh, the place needed to be quieter, calmer, while Koch's mother was pregnant. I think with a new baby, things will be just as tough, just as chaotic there. They bid their farewell. Um, Sean and Eileen get into the car they drive off uh, up the long country lane and Koch decides to take off running after him this of course is all the more poignant because Sean has essentially made games for Koch to run and it's been part of their bond to run and get the post and he timer so we had lots of really really beautiful shots of her running up this kind of tree line leafy um laneway on on the farm where Sean and Eileen live in slow motion and that kind of running motif has been established uh running to something I I think would be the way you would put it you get the post you run back to Sean and in this moment she has returned home and she's She's running away from home and she's running to Sean and Eileen. Um, so she runs after the car, chases up the laneway. Her own father starts to chase after her, wondering what's happening. And as they get to the top of the laneway, Sean is just the other side of the gate, closing the gate, having got out of the car to open it and then close it again. And he sees Koch running towards him. She runs, leaps into his arms and they embrace and while they embrace, Eileen is just sobbing inconsolably in the, the front seat of the car. And Koch looks back up the laneway where her father is rushing towards them. And she says, Daddy, spotting her dad. And then she just kind of nuzzles her head back into Sean and she whispers quietly, Daddy is a acknowledgement of the new father figure in her life. And then we got to cut to black and everyone's crying. It's beautiful. It's just masterfully, masterfully made. Brilliantly written. Can't, can't recommend it any more highly. 
Yeah. I was unwell. Great, gr- great ending. And you know, I, 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 I love a, I love a good gump punch of an ending. It's something I, I'm a fan of, and it, it accomplishes it on many levels, right there. And, uh, woo, yeah. I guess I, I, I was gonna say, I don't know if you had set me up to know that there was a gut punch ending at all. I have, obviously, I've got no concept of time. I, I don't know. I when... think I, I'd set it up that you, you may, you may find tears come to your eye throughout it. I, okay. That was what I gave you. I hadn't necessarily said, "Oh, wait for the ending; you'll you'll be in tears." But I, okay. I had prepared you for the fact that, yeah, it's a film that might draw out some emotions. Yeah, and you know, I thought I'd gotten all that out of the way, and then, lo and behold, what a film, Adam! You you did not oversell it. You were not letting your, you know, your Irish patriotism uh, cloud your judgment. Uh. Like I did with Where Did the Crawdad Sing, um, you were spot on and providing uh, keen insight into uh, a film. I hope more people on this side of the world get to see. Uh, aside from that, I think from hoping that people in the U.S. and across the world get to check it out and continues to get to a wider and wider audience, the most I can hope for is that people start to think that your Where Did the Crawdad Sing bit is not in fact ironic, and they take it at face value and are like, "Oh." That's just that's just Andrews the quiet girl. No, we're there. It's uh <laughs> North North Carolina through and through, just like basically daily life. Have you seen it? I've forgotten if you've actually seen the film. No, I've not. No, that's unfortunate. We'll we'll need to address that. We'll do a listen, it we'll be finished our kind of our race to get through the best of the year. Uh maybe we just have to do a cultural exchange, which involves where the crowd I'd say at Wild Mountain Time. And we just talk about how our people are uh, so often misrepresented and caricatured on screen. It'll be parentheses, don't make time for this, will be the episode. <laughs> All right, that does it for this one. Um, again, if you can, if you could find it playing anywhere near you, if you're in a major city, or when it lands on VOD or streaming, The Quiet Girl on Colleen Kuhn, make sure that you, you make time for this, I guess, is the... This is the, the way I should wrap that up. We'll be back again next week, later, later in the week next week. Um, and we'll be talking about Knock at the Cabin and the films of M. Night Shyamalan. I don't know if I was anticipating doing M. Night Shyamalan episode before I saw Knock at the Cabin. Um, I don't want people to think that Next week, I'm going to be like, this is this is a masterpiece film. And, you know, this is right up there with The Quiet Girl and Decision to Leave and other films you've heard me rave about recently. But I very much enjoyed it. I think it's really interesting. And I think M. Night Shyamalan is at this point a fascinating filmmaker to talk about. So we're going to do just that. Look out for that towards the back end of next week. will be a little bit more than a week between episodes this time around. Until then, you can let us know your thoughts on, on Colleen Kuhn or anything talked about in this episode. We're on Repod. It's the best place to get it. If you want to chat with us about any episode, we're there. We're starting the discussion. We're ready and waiting for you guys to come and check it out. Repod is a place where you can go and um, listen to your podcast there. If you're looking for a new podcast player of choice, all your favorite pods are there. You can go and 
follow, subscribe, and make sure that you get all of the episodes straight into your feed. Um, but it's also somewhere where you can then go to, for example, joinrepod.com forward slash make time for this. Go to the make time for this room and we'll have the floor open for questions and discussion and debate, whether you agree, you disagree, whatever it might be on any of our episodes. So that's the best place to go and find us if you want to talk about any films, TV, music, whatever it might be we talk about on this podcast. Of course, you should subscribe to us wherever you get your pods. That's what make time for this. You should also subscribe to the rest of the Eurostep Podcast Network shows. The main feed, Eurostep Podcast Network, home to all things Milwaukee book, when Milwaukee books even, Andrew. Um, winning six with myself and Jordan Tresky. Eurostep with Ty Windish and Rowan Cuddy. It's trade deadline week. You'll be well covered across the course of the week on that feed. Talking to Tundra for all things Green Bay Packers and cruising for a bruising for all things Milwaukee Brewers. That's where you'll find Andrew and I talking even more if you just can't get enough. Until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Adam.